Peer Review is a series of podcasts designed to shed light on the extraordinary breadth and diversity of talent that sit in the House of Lords. The House of Lords often gets a bad rap because it is thought to be a house of cronies and it is an unelected house. But I hope through these interviews you will see that there is this extraordinary talent, there is a great knowledge and experience, and with that I leave you to draw your own conclusions. Well, my guest today is Lord Barclay, Tony Barclay. Tony, you're, you're, you're a hereditary peer and then became a life peer, which is an amazing achievement, but of course a labour peer, which is uh, unusual for a family which has such strong limit, lineage going back to 1421, I think. Or a bit earlier, almost to William the Conqueror, probably. But um, there we are. <laughs> We're still here. And also, interestingly, you inherited, I think I'm right in saying, the peerage from your aunt. Yes, it's one of a very small number of baronies that go through the female line as well as the male line. So what, what, where was your father in all this? Married to my mother, who would have inherited the title, except she, her sister inherited it first, right. and my mother then died, had died first. But it was, it was, so it was their grandmother who inherited the title, um, and um, they uh, eventually applied, when women were admitted to the House of Lords, they applied to um, become a member and were accepted. Amazing. Anyway, you, you've, you've followed in a long tradition. Now, most people would have thought, having been to Eton and Trinity College, Cambridge, that you might well have been a Tory, but you aren't. You're a Labour peer. Where, where did Labour come into your life? Was it something that your, your parents were Labour activists? or? Oh, no. My parents were uh, country Tories and... Um... One of uh, you well, must have been it, a great disappointment to them then. Well, it probably, <laughs> I don't know, but one of your predecessors in the Tory party came up to me after my aunt had died and said, "If your aunt had known that you joined the Labour Party, she'd be turning in her grave." <laughs> I said, "Well, actually, what her views were very similar to mine. I think it's probably the parties that have changed, <laughs> but I felt very comfortable with Labour." Yeah. <laughs> so, when did you join the Labour Party? Um, uh, very soon after I inherited the title, because I had this view, maybe wrong, maybe right, that I shouldn't be a member of any political party while I was working. I was building the Channel Tunnel, and I just did, doing a lot of work in Parliament. I didn't want any anybody to think, well, he's a member of that party, therefore this. So I, I, I had no membership until I joined the House of Lords for that reason. Yeah. And one of the really interesting things about you, and I, I remember it from my maiden speech, is you are probably the leading expert in the Lords on transport. I mean, it's something that you've been very committed to, infrastructure, another thing, largely from presumably your, your upbringing, being with George Wimpy and then being involved in building the Eurotunnel, which you mentioned earlier. But let's go back. How did that all start? Where, what did you read at Trinity? I read Engineering. So it was Trinity. natural for you to go to And I became Wimpy. a civil engineer because I, I just thought I'd, it suited me building things, frankly. And um, I, I learned quite a lot at Trinity. I learned a lot in my first few jobs. Um, sometimes you think that you go to university and it will be helpful for you in your next few jobs. 
it, it's helpful in some ways, but not actually in how to calculate things. So you learn things on the job, and then it did seem to be that most of the work I was doing was involved in transport, not just railways, but roads, bridges, the occasional dam, jetties, you know, um, things you, le you learn. And you learn about how the construction industry works, which is very, very important. And I, and I loved it. And you were with George Wimpy to start yeah. with, which and what were the projects you were involved in with them? Well, one was, uh, one was building a jetty in Scotland to um, receive oil from the Middle East, very in deep water, about 100 meters of water, um, on Loch Long, which was a lovely place. Very difficult to build a jetty in those things. And how long were you up there for? I was a couple of years up there. Then I went and built a dam in Wales called Lynn which was to um, collect the water from the River Towy and send it down to Swansea when Swansea needed the water rather than in the winter storms. And that was very interesting, a completely different uh, idea. And then I went to Romania for two years um, to build an irrigation scheme for Wimpy. And working in Ceausescu land was <laughs> a real eye-opener, <laughs> as you can imagine. I wonder if the bills were ever paid. Well, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, in I think it was in 1985, you joined the Eurotunnel team as a, as one of their major engineers. Well, after the Labour government cancelled the Channel Tunnel for you know quite good economic reasons at the time, I think. Then, after Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister, the contractors that we worked for said, "Well, look, if it can be built in the private sector." Why, why won't you allow it to go ahead? And did a lot of lobbying, and in the end she said, yeah, okay, you, you put some submissions to us, and we'll, we'll talk to the French government, and we maybe go ahead. So who were, were you involved in that lobbying process? Yes, I was, yeah, all the way through. And, uh, and who were the sort of key? Well, there were two of us starting it, and then we gradually built the team up. Yeah. Um, and we got some very excellent people helping us, and um, we got more contractors in, we got some banks in, clearing banks, merchant banks, and things like that. And then, of course, we had to find French partners, which we did. And who, then, who were the French partners? Oh, God. Uh, the, Largely the government, I guess. Uh, no, no, no. There were French contractors and French banks, and uh, including Bouig and many other ones. But um, in the end, uh, we thought we had a project that would work. The tunnel was the least risky of all the types of fixed link, because of course the government said, well, you can't just build a tunnel. We're not going to allow you to do this without a bit of competition. So they said, they opened a competition to build a fixed link. Could have been bridges, it could have been submerged tunnels, it could have been board tunnels. Now we'd gone for a board tunnel because we had all the drawings from the previous one, so we didn't have to pay for the consultants again, and we actually thought it was a, a less risky project. So we had to compete against British Steel, Ian McGregor, you may remember. Mm -hmm. um, and in the end, um, we, had, we were, had enormous support from somebody called Nicholas Henderson, who'd been yeah, member, of yeah. uh, ambassador in Washington during the Falcon Paris. War. He knew Margaret very well, and he helped a lot. Because um, at one stage, Margaret Thatcher said to him, well, Nico, how do you... You say that the Channel Tunnel is the best one, the Board Tunnel, but... How do I take my car through the tunnel? He said, oh, you put them on a shuttle. She never asked what the shuttle was, which, of course, is a train. 
mm. as we now know. And why, why didn't it? Why didn't it become a car? Um, the risks from the emissions and the construction in much bigger tunnels. So the the risks were much too great, and we had a because job. you had the emissions would sort of. Well, the, ventil the ventilation, you had to have yeah, fans. I mean, some people were going to build islands in the middle of the Dover Straits, which could have been interesting. The bridges wouldn't have emissions problems. But um, really, it, it was the, the, the least risky of them all. And we, did have, we had trouble raising our money. You know, Alistair Morton was our chairman with Andre Bernard on the French side, and um, they, they worked their socks off doing it. Um, and then we had a financial crisis in the middle and everything, but they did it. But um, they never it would never have built a bridge or a board road tunnel without government support at the end of it. Remind me of the history. So, I mean, you stopped working, I think, with Eurotunnel in 95. Yes. Was it off to the races then? Had construction started? Oh, no, we'd finished it by we'd then. Finished it by the 95. Queen, Her Majesty, had come down and been on the first train through the tunnel. I was involved when in When was the first train? 94. 94. So you'd finished it in 95. Finished Job in done. 94, 95. You'd made yourself redundant. Yeah. <laughs> pretty well, much. They made, I mean, I, you know, I thought, <laughs> let, let them get on and run it, you know. Yeah. But um, the, the best thing was that with um, one of the things to celebrate the opening was to run 100 years of vintage cars through the tunnel with Lord Montague of Bewley. You remember yeah, Edward yeah, Montague? Yeah. Wonderful man. He organized and our chair, Alistair Morton, took a very old car through, and there was a hundred cars going through. But, of course, they had to switch off the emergency petrol smellers in the trains because they would have all, you know, stopped the trains because of the petrol leaking everywhere, but <laughs> yes. managed to get away with it anyway. <laughs> uh, well, that was an incredible achievement, and, and you must look back with huge satisfaction. Wonderful. Do you yeah. use it much yourself now? Yes, I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But on the, most most of the train, but you know, it's it's good. You came into the Lords. You were made a life peer in '92, I think. Yeah, I think. Um, around then, yeah, yeah. And have been this great sort of champion of of transport. I, I think I'm right in saying you you cycle. You're an incredibly keen cyclist. Do you, do you cycle to the station from home in Cornwall and then get on the train and then take the train up and then cycle? Yes, I've got a folding bike, a Brompton. Yeah. Um, I, two or three years ago, I decided as I was 80, I would buy an electric Brompton, which helps me up the hills in Cornwall, Yeah, which is which is very nice. But you still cycle to yeah, the I station? Guess, yes, from... I still cycle everywhere. And I cycle around Cornwall in the summer and holidays and everything. And it's lovely, you know. And it's um, what I will not do is cycle in Cornwall in the dark. You can imagine yeah. that other people coming the other way after they've been to the pub might be a bit difficult. Yeah. Yeah. One of your great conversations at the moment is the future of HS2 and the cost, etc. Talk me through your, your view on HS2. Well, it's very, it's, it, many people think it's odd I should be opposing HS2, as possibly you're suggesting. Um, I was very keen on HS1 being built to London and supported them in many, many ways. Um, <clears throat> And then they came along with HS2 and said, we have to get from London to Birmingham, Manchester, or wherever, a lot faster. And we have to have a train that will go faster than any other 
train in the world. And having travelled around the continent quite often on high-speed lines, I mean, France and Italy in particular are much bigger areas of land than we have, and they do very well with their high-speed trains. So why do we need to go another step change faster to get to Birmingham, which would effectively be about 20 minutes quicker? Especially when you're having to build a line through pretty well um, populated parts of the UK. I mean, apart from the Chilterns, isn't that populated, but it's very beautiful, and all the way up there. And um, I suddenly realised that they were trying to specify this, and they'd sold it to ministers as being British technology being the best in the world. We'll go the fastest, we'll get the more trains on it, and it'll be wonderful. We can sell the technology around the world. And I began to feel that... Um, the cost of doing that, the construction cost, the design costs, apart from the damage it was going to do to the environment, because, of course, the simple thing with high-speed trains is they don't like going around corners fast. They've got to go straight, mm -hmm. you can understand. Um, and if you've got to go straight in a country like ours, you either plough through the middle of a city or you plough through lovely countryside or you, or you build a few bends in it. If you go on the French high-speed line from Paris to Lyon, it's full of bends. And they, they go at good speeds, but they don't go, they haven't got to go directly and, and trample through all the time. So, and then I, it was quite clear that we hadn't got to sorted out the station at Euston, and still haven't. They haven't sorted out. In what way haven't they sorted out? Well, there's two ways they can't get. They haven't sorted out, and it was in the Public Accounts Committee report this last week. Um, they want to build a station next to Euston, um, the existing Euston station, but they wanted to have 18 trains an hour come in for all the different routes, which meant they had to have a very complicated catch cradle of tunnels under on the approaches, which will be either underneath the retaining walls on the west as you go out of Euston, which are founded on sand, mm -hmm. or underneath the existing railways into Euston. Now, from my experience in building the Channel Tunnel, the riskiest bit of building the tunnel underground was what we call the crossovers, where you've got a much bigger cavern, as we call them, where the trains could cross from one line to the other in case they wanted to maintain one bit of it. Now, they had to build these crossovers somewhere outside Euston. And we came up with a design for them about five years ago, which they rejected, um, and they still haven't got a design. So it's fine saying we're going to go to Euston, but they haven't worked out how, and they haven't therefore worked out the price, which is probably three or four times what it... Currently running at $140 billion or something. Well, that's the whole project is $140 yeah, No, I might not mean that bit, but yes, the whole project. Yes, that's right. Uh, which is mm. way beyond what was originally budgeted. You've been a real advocate of opposition, which I, I think is is good to question. What are the other areas that you're most um, most proud of in terms of your contribution in the Lords to transport? Well, I am proud of what we've done on cycling. And I have to say, up until COVID came, it was, it was an uphill task persuading people that cycling and walking was a very important part of people getting around cities and towns. And then COVID came, and uh, 
the government decided that um, they're going to build, encourage local authorities to build lots of cycle lanes, footpaths, um, and restrict the spaces for cars because there was no need for them. And I think they've done incredibly well. I mean, I'm afraid ministers have been have been given a lot of grief by people who um, can't drive their cars where they want to go. But honestly, apart from the quality of life, being able to let the kids go to school, to play in the, play in the street, there's a whole question of the air quality in towns, which has now been quite in, in much more detailed measured of the very small particulates that you get which that's why the mayor of London is trying to reduce the number of old, old cars going around London at the moment because of the bad emissions, and a lot of people say it's wrong. But actually, if people are dying because of this failure to do it, then you've got to take that into account, I think. So the cycling and walking, I'm really very keen on. The other thing which is related to it is road accidents and fatalities because over the years I've try to put down a number of amendments and lobbies for things like that. But um, when people drive their kids to school in a 4 by 4 and then try and park straight outside, all that happens is that little Johnny inside the car is very well protected. With all the statistics, he's very well protected. He's got padding all the way around inside. But that car is the most dangerous one when it comes to hitting pedestrians or be they adults mm. or children. And it's, this is another stage of making the towns and cities more acceptable to people to live in. And I think that's really good. And long may it continue. And um, I'm also very keen on seeing more people in buses because, of course... Um, but, of course, with the problem with buses is, is the same problem with cars. If you put 20-mile-an-hour speed limits and things like that, they don't move as quickly and they're not as efficient transport. That's why I don't use the bus and use a bicycle instead. Well, you're absolutely right there. But on the other hand, where there's bus lanes, and there are quite a few bus lanes around, they, the buses do use them and the cars keep out of them. Uh, it's a question of whether you mix a lane for buses and bikes or whether you do it the other way around, as you were saying. I mean, there's different... There's different solutions to it all, but the key must be to find a means of enabling people to get around where they live in comfort, in safety, and without air pollution. And this is why there's another trend happening now is smaller communities in big cities. You call it a 15 or 20 minute community where people find that everything they need virtually is, is, walking and they can, is it walking, cycling, it might be busing or whatever. You with me? Yeah. And I suppose that's why I'm going back to HS2 and what the, 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 the Manchester authorities are doing at this very moment. They don't want what the government is proposing, is having a big railway terminus for HS2 with lots of platforms and buffers. So then all the, all the passengers have to get out at the same place and change trains to somewhere else. Whereas if you look at every station in Europe, in the city centre, since the last war, no major station has been built with buffers. And they all have tunnels that go straight through, 
and maybe two, three, four platforms. They're going on. People somewhere. can change onto other mm. plat trains, and you can get all the different <clears throat> types of trains and destinations going through one after the other. So it's you, one's got to modernise and bring in the new equipment, which we've got lovely new trains now. And you, you're quite an advocate of having more regular stops on on the yes. trains, aren't you? Yes, I think so because you see with with the laptops on people on the train. Do you actually need to get to your destination that much more quickly? Well, there'll be a lot of frustrated passengers who say, I, I have to stand on the train. <laughs> well, yeah, but Jonathan, that that is because a different type of train. You've got commuters. Yeah. And there's less commuting now than there was before COVID. And that's a statistic which will probably stay. Well, also, there's less train commuting because the trains have been on strike so often. Well, that's a, that's another irritating part about it. You're quite right. However, when you talk to Parliament... I mean, that uh, must actually, even though you, you're on the Labour benches, that must actually really drive you... Well, I think it's... It, to uh, great frustration. It's very frustrating because... I'm not, not, I mean, you, you can blame whoever it is, but really it does need sorting, and sorting quickly. But when I talk to parliamentarians about all these different types of trains, they say, well, we've got to get to London more quickly from my constituency. And I say, hang on a second, you do that once a week on a fast train, and you've got your laptop out, and you're working for two, three, four hours. I mean, I come from Cornwall, it's five hours, five hours work. You don't need to get there half an hour more quickly because you, 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 once you're settled in, that's fine. Mm. So speed, you know, and if you're taking your family on holiday somewhere for a couple of hour journey, do you need to get there half an hour quicker? I think what we need in the whole country is a better service, particularly in the Midlands and the North, where people can get to work. And particularly across school, Pennine too. Across the Pennines, you're absolutely right, and east-west between Birmingham and um, yeah and Derby or somewhere, that's what they need. And it's it's just not happening. And the services up there are actually rubbish, many of them. Yeah, as we've seen. <laughs> but moving on to two other areas of you are known for uh, in particular. One, one is your chairman, I think chairman, of the All-Party Group on Whistleblowing, or you've been involved in it, let's put mm. it that way. Mm. Uh, this is a very contemporary issue, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, how do you see the landscape on that now? Well, um, I'm not chair of it, but I'm a, I'm a great supporter of it because, largely because a number of people who work for HS2 came to me and said, look, we're being told a load of lies. And, you know, the cost the costs that are being produced for public consumption are miles away from the actual costs. The problem with that is that um, nobody will pick it up and run with it in a way which protects these people from, well, penury, frankly, because they'll be they'll be sacked. And I know several people who applied for, who are very senior there, who've applied for jobs in other sectors, not transport particularly, and um, they've been refused because they people have looked at their CV. So. The whistleblower is, and it's not just in transport, it's in the health service and everything else. So it's a really important thing that the government ought to get a, get a grip on. And um, Susan Kramer, who's um, my colleague in the Lib Dem benches, um, she's sort of got a private member's bill to try and sort out the, make the whole whistleblower situation much fairer 
for the whistle whistleblowers and to make sure that it's fair. You, you know, it's it, it's it is well, it's fair with other other people. But um, well, of course, a lot of whistleblowers of of are whistleblowing for the wrong reasons. Yes, they are, and um, you've got to make that sure balance, isn't it? Yes, you've got to get the balance. You've got to weed them out. And how do you do that in legislation? Um, there are ways of doing it, and um, I can't. Go, I'm not going to go into the details now, but um. But so you're planning on coming up with? I ideas. will support Susan Kramer's bill. Um, it's in the Lords still, but I doubt it'll get through before the end, end of this Parliament. But we'll keep at it, um, and um, I'm hoping, of course, that if the government, whatever the next government is, will pick it up and run with it. Um, which is the best way of getting a private member's bill through, as you well know. Yeah. So um, yes, it's very important to keep to keep it going. But um, some people write to me, and they write to every member of the House of Lords and House of Commons, saying, "Look, I got this terrible problem, this, that, and the other." And um, we just can't deal with individual cases. We've got to, we've got to concentrate on getting the bill through. And getting that, you know, we've got, yeah. we got wonderful legal advice from people. Mm. It's just, you know, it's hard. And you've quite long been a critic of the Duchy of Cornwall, <laughs> where you and I have discussed in the past. Yes, we have. <laughs> Are you less of a critic now, or are you still? <laughs> um, I, my views on the Duchy of Cornwall is that um, why are they seem to be so special. Well, I've had a couple of private members' bills, which we've got a few debates over the years. I tend to come back every year with the same one. But um, if they're a private sector estate, as they claim to be, then they should abide by the private sector rules of any big estate in this country, and there's many around. Um, and there's one particular thing which will come up again soon, which is a leasehold reform, because the, the duchy is saying to some of my friends in the Isles of Scilly that um, even though um, government legislation and the Law Commission's report, which came out a couple of years ago, saying that anybody who owns a lease should be able to convert that to a freehold at a reasonable price, and the duchy is saying, well, that shouldn't apply to us because um, we're special, and the properties we own are special. And I've been saying to them, well, yes, but Carlton House Terrace in London, yes, very special. A house that was built in 1960, half a mile from a castle wall in St. Mary's that you shouldn't really own anyway because there's no, there's no record of your owning the Isles of Scilly at all. Come on, let's be reasonable if somebody wants to buy the freehold. And we're still in discussion about that, but... um. Uh, there's other but you're having a reasonable discussion. Yes. And, and there's been a, a, a nice rapprochement, isn't it? Uh, the, the, or, or senses being... Yes. Yeah, which is I, a good thing. The last time I had a discussion with them on this bill, I went through all the 10 clauses, and they said, well, they all seem quite reasonable. I said, right, are you going to support my bill? They said, oh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I mean, yes, of course it was reasonable. And that's the only way to do these things, yeah, of course. Exactly. You know. That's where the Lord's works very well. <laughs> Looking back, being a hereditary and also being an award of life peerage, uh, one of your colleagues, Lord Grocott, wants to see the end of, of hereditaries. Have, have you taken a position on that? Or uh, Lord Grocott is right. 
I'm not sitting there as a hereditary. I know you're I'm not. sitting there as a life peer. And if he gets rid of them, then they'll all go. Uh, it doesn't stop the government of the day making one or two of them life peers if they have contributed. Yeah, which and you I have. suspect that's why I was made a life peer. I'm sure I don't it was. know. Quite but, rightly um, so. There are good people, hereditaries. Uh, some who possibly don't work as hard as they could be. But there are life peers who don't work as hard as they could do. There are many life peers who don't. Yeah. Um, and it all, it all needs looking at again because um, there, there, there are some of us, and you and me are probably part, part, to, to part of them. Um, we, we try quite hard. We come in and vote. We also try and speak and put in questions down. But I see my role as challenging the government. Even when Labour was in power, I often challenged the Labour Party. <laughs> yeah. They didn't like me for it much, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I wasn't probably quite as rude as I am now. I'm not that rude now, but, you know. No, you're never rude. But um, it, it, one's got to challenge government and say, have you thought of this? Yeah. And um, the great thing about anybody who does that is that they have to have experience of where this would be useful, mm. where they've done it or they've seen it happen in other walks of life. And they come in, and we've got lots of lovely examples in the Lords, you know. And if people do that, and if that is combined with an ability of the government to negotiate, which doesn't always happen, mm. um, then we can actually improve legislation in a way that um, the Commons won't or can't or doesn't choose to. Well, you're a case in point. I mean, very few people in the Commons have the expertise you have in in civil engineering, in transport, etc. You've been a great campaigner for it. There are loads of people who are eternally grateful to what you've achieved through the legislation and the changes in legislation you've got and your exemplar of, of that. So, Tony, I, I'm incredibly grateful for you sparing the time. It's, you've been a great contributor to the Lords. Thank you very much. I feel very honoured. <laughs>